All right, if you would please turn to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32 through 34. This morning we're going to look at the story of the golden calf. Uh, but as we begin, I want to tell you a little story. This summer I, I uh, did a wedding in Chicago of one of our, our former students, and I took uh, Tris and the kids up. We spent a few days in Chicago. It was, it was awesome. Uh, but as we were, we were flying home, um, the pilot got on the intercom and he said, he's like, uh, we're going we're to experience some weather. Can we probably going to delay our flight? And we're like, oh my gosh, we were really tight connection. We were flying Houston, then getting a little commuter plane up to College Station. And we're getting into Houston like at the last commuter flight point, something, man, this is really tight. If we miss it, we're going get, to get stuck. And, um, you know, as the, the flight went on, apparently he was able to get through the weather. He went a little higher, made really good time. We landed right on time. Connection was still tight, but he landed right on time. So I'm thinking, this is awesome. We're, we're going to make our connection. Uh, I looked out the window. There's no rain coming down. And then we just sat, right? We just sat in the plane. Five minutes, 10 minutes. He comes back on and said, yeah, we experienced some weather. I'm like, there's no weather, man. There's no weather. There's no weather at all, right? And, and if you've ever been on a plane in that kind of setting, right, people start getting pretty amped up, right? They're getting really anxious because you know, who wants to spend the night in Houston? I mean, really, even if you live there. Who wants to spend the night in Houston? <laughs> Some of my best friends are from Houston. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, a lot of the folks are making a connection. They're getting really agitated. They're getting really frustrated. And then a guy in, back in our section took out a puppy. I'm not kidding. He, he, right, he just he took out a puppy. He was transporting a puppy, and he took the puppy out, and he starts passing the puppy around, and it was, it was amazing, right? Everybody in our little section just goes, oh, you know, and just calm down, right? The rest of the plane is still, ah, uh, you know, getting all worked up and everything, but, you know, our section, we're just loving on the puppy, right? Everybody gets to hold the puppy and pet the puppy. It was amazing. And so this is an aside that really doesn't have anything to do with my, the point of my illustration, but I got to tell you, I got to tell you that I asked him about... I asked him about the puppy. He was uh, retired. He had just retired from the military, and he had opened up uh, his, he, a dog breeding business, right? So he was literally he was transporting his first puppy to be delivered that um, he, was, he was giving away. And, or not giving away, rather. This is my point of my aside. Is uh, The puppy he was selling for $10,000. I know. <laughs> Seriously. It's an English bulldog. Like, I go... Are you kidding? $10,000. Yeah, that's why he gets on a plane, right, and hand delivers. I've never held a $10,000 puppy before, which that's not the point of my illustration at all, but I just, I, you just, stunning. <laughs> it's a dog. Surely, never mind. I, I, um, back to my, I distracted myself even. Sorry, back to my point. So, you know, we got off the plane and it's like, okay, we're, we are not going to make our connection. So they shuttled all of us like cattle to the customer service desk. There's this really long line. It's everybody from our flight. And man, you know, folks, are, they, are, they were really frustrated. Like, they're cussing at each other. They're cussing at the personnel. They're just, you know, they're angry, right? And get to the desk, and I'm watching and listening to all this. And it's a great life study for my kids. I'm like, you know, what, what's their anger going to produce here? Let's just watch this whole interaction, right? And they're just, ah, you know. Get me on another flight. Get me a rental car. Get me, you know, just, all right, get, get me moving again. Which, you know, they had, they had nothing to offer, right? They're saying, well, they told us, so, well, you can pay for a hotel for yourself, and in the morning we'll put you on another flight, you know, or you can rent yourself a rental car, right? There's nothing they were going to do. And people were just like, get me moving again. Get me moving again, right? And I was thinking about that uh, yesterday. I thought, you know, that's exactly where Israel is in this moment of our story. 
Right? They've been promised a destination. It's called the promised land, but now they're stalled in the desert. And so they turn to Aaron and they say, get us another God. We're tired of waiting on Moses. We're tired of waiting on God. Get us to the promised land. Get us moving. Right? And their, their, whole, their whole worldview, in a sense, just crumbles in this moment. And they fall into this pit of idolatry. And it's really an amazing and remarkable story. I want us to begin digging into it in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. Read with me there. It says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed, we're under a slight delay, right? Moses is he's stuck on the mountain. Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. The people assembled about Aaron, and they said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't even know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, and said, and they said This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast of the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to play. Now maybe you're looking at that story and you're thinking, that's just crazy. That's just crazy. If, If I had seen God perform all of those miracles and then part the Red Sea and then give us Uh, manna and quail and water and done all these miracles and if I'd witnessed the glory of the Lord descending on a mountain and I'd seen the fire and the smoke and the lightning and the thunder and I'd heard the voice of the Lord there's no way that I would have done anything but worship him with all of my heart soul mind and strength right thank God that I don't live in an age where they're so foolish and they worship idols I'm, I'm glad that I've never worshiped idols I'm glad there are no idols in my life or idols in my house right okay you know where I'm going uh, I'm going to propose that um, all of you are idolaters in some form or fashion. And maybe you're saying, no, 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 no. Well, just, I want you to just stay with me. Uh, listen to the Lord's description of idolatry in Ezekiel. He said this, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. Right? It wasn't really just about the, the image. Or it wasn't about the item, right? But it was about what was transpiring in, in the hearts of the people. And one of the things I noticed this uh, the last couple of weeks as I've been reading through, uh, you know, the, the Ten Commandments and this story about um, the, the people m- moving into the wilderness and this golden calf, is it struck me that there really are two forms of idolatry that are addressed in the, in the Ten Commandments. Right? There's First Commandment idolatry and there's Second Commandment idolatry. First Commandment idolatry is replacing God with another God. Second commandment idolatry is remaking God into, into a new image. Right? First commandment idolatry is it's, it's replacing God, putting another God in the place of God. So Thomas Oden, uh, Old Testament commentator, said this. He said, one has a God when a finite value is worshipped and adored and viewed as that without which one cannot receive life joyfully. Right? You've got a God, small g, false God, idol, when a finite value is worshipped and adored and viewed as that without which one cannot receive life joyfully. I have to have that thing. Or I don't have life 
in its fullest. That's a replacement God. Timothy Keller says this, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. I'm worshiping a replacement God. Now, Keller goes on in uh, his book, Counterfeit Gods, and he says this. It's kind of a long quote, but I want you to stick with me. He observes, Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its own priesthoods, its totems, and its rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios, or stadiums. Each one has its own shrines where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement, but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society? We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. We all have idols. Let me list a few of them for you. As Keller noted, money. Money can be an idol. Paul will describe money as an idol in Colossians 3. He says, greed, that, that, that push to have more, he said, is idolatry. It is idolatry. And people want money for lots of different reasons, right? It may not be money itself, right? They might not set up a stack of money and bow down before the stack of money, but what money gives them, which may be power over others or influence or a sense of security or just the possessions that can be purchased. The body can become an idol. Right? When there's so much fear or worship of the body, as he said, you see anorexia, bulimia, or even fitness addictions. That's the worship of the body. A sexual freedom can become an idol. Interesting statistic I stumbled across this week. 42% of Protestant Christians believe that God uh, finds no problem with pornography. Okay, 42% of Protestant Christians. 51% believe that premarital sex is fine. That's Protestant Christians in the U.S. Uh, Technology, science, education, intelligence, these are the things if we invest our lives in them, they will save us from what's most broken in life. Uh, Political power, it's especially poignant in the season that we're entering into, right? What's most broken in our world, if we just can grab a hold of enough political power, we can can fix it, right? Uh, Family. Family can be an idol. Family can be an idol that's really praised, even in our circles. Right? But God tested Abraham. He said, Abraham, I want to know, do you love your son more than you love me? Or am I first and foremost in your life? Ministry can become an idol. Doing good for others can become an idol. Now, I, want, I want to make an observation here after I've read through that list. And it's this. Uh, good things make better idols than evil things. 
Good things make better idols than evil things. Evil things get outed a lot more quickly, right? Drugs and alcohol, not a good idol, right? Because it's so quickly destructive in your life and society doesn't affirm it. But this list that I've read, society can affirm a lot of these things, right? There's nothing inherently bad with anything that I just read. Money is not a bad thing. In fact, it can be a wonderful and useful tool for enjoyment of life and blessing of others. Sex, that's a gift from God. It's a, it's a wonderful gift from God. It's not a bad thing. It's a, it's a good thing. Family is a good thing. Ministry is a good All of these things are good things. But when they're elevated above the Lord and they become the God, they become the idol, then they become destructive in our lives. Right? That's, that's first commandment idolatry. Second commandment idolatry is remaking God, right? First commandment idolatry is replacing God. Second commandment idolatry is remaking God. And I think that's what's happening in this story about the golden calf. Look with me again, chapter 32 and verse 4. It says, Aaron Aaron took all their, their gold rings and their earrings and stuff. He took it from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and he made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, or it could be these are your God's. O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation. He said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. Did you catch that? What he says is, um, We're just going to worship Yahweh the way we want to worship Yahweh. Right? He said, We're still worshiping Yahweh, but we're going to remake Yahweh. And we say, This is absolutely crazy that they would bow down before a, a, a figure. We don't know how large it was. Um, it's gold. Was it solid gold or wood covered in gold? We don't know, but it, it, it's this image of, of a bull. How, how did they get this idea? Well, this is the culture they'd grown up in. Right? They'd grown up in an idolatrous culture. They had seen this all around them. The Egyptians made idols out of everything. The Egyptians fashioned gods and set the rules for the gods so that they could control the gods, Right? So this is something that they had, had observed their entire lives. And, and really, in the ancient Near East, it wasn't that they believed the, the idol itself was the God. They believed if they could make it attractive enough, they could entice the God to come and, and dwell in this image. And then they would have control over the image. They could take it anywhere they wanted to go. They didn't have to stop right now in the desert and wait in Mount Sinai. They could pick up their God and get moving. Right? And now they could worship him in the way that they wanted to worship him, not in the way that he had told them to worship him. So notice what it says in chapter 32, verse 6. After Aaron says, hey, tomorrow we're going to have a feast to Yahweh. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings, and they brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. And if you think there is a euphemism there, you are correct. They sat down and they ate and they indulged in food and they indulged in drink and then they got up and they had an orgy. They just, they immediately fell back into this horrific pagan form of worship. Now, let's talk about us. (laughs) Why why do we slide into uh, replacing God? or remaking God and worshiping him as we choose to worship him. Why do we do that? Uh, I'm going to give you uh, two reasons. The first is this. The first is that we believe the lie, okay, the lie. Expressed uh, originally in Genesis chapter 3, 
Satan speaking, he says, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, that is the fruit that God said don't eat from it, he said the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The the lie is, you can make your own gods because you can be God. So you get to choose your gods, make your gods, worship however you want to worship your gods. And you can do it as you please. That's the lie. You don't... You don't have to live under God's authority. In fact, there's a better life not living the way that God tells you to live, but in figuring out the best way to live life for yourself. Paul talks about that same lie, Romans chapter 1, verse 25. He says, they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And in my translation, it says a lie, but it is literally, there's the definite article, is it's the lie. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They made an exchange. And they said, we can, we can worship God as we choose to worship God. Right? They, they believe the lie. We believe the lie. We believe the lie. The life can be found in a way better than what God has described. And, and we want control over that. Right? We want to worship God the way that we want to worship God because we don't trust God. They're stalled out in the wilderness, and they're like, we got to get to our destination, and we know best. We, know, we, we, want, we want all of God's blessings. He promised us the promised land, but we want it when we want it and how we want it, and that means now. Right? And we want control over all that. There's a really interesting description of the construction of idols in the Isaiah chapter 41. And it says uh, the, the, the craftsman makes this, makes this idol and makes it beautiful. Right, so the God will inhabit it, but then he, he sets it on the, on the ground and fastens it with nails so it won't fall over. And the idea is this. We want control over our gods because we want all of God's blessings, but we want God's blessings in the form and in the timing that we want. But there's going to come a point in time where we can't make that happen, and so we've got to lean on the God. And when we lean on the God, we don't want him to fall over. Right? We want him to be manipulable and also powerful. We want both. We want both. So how do we know when we've drifted into uh, this kind of worship? Let me give you a few thoughts. I think we've drifted into this second form of idolatry, um, remaking who God is and how we should worship him. When we give God just a, a little bit of our time on Sunday, but the rest of our time is ours. Not recognizing that all of life is a gift from God. You don't exist apart from God. Who, who owns your time? It's not your time. It's, it's God's. Your life is from God. That means 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days of the year. God gets to say, this is how you should live your life. This is how you should spend your time. But when we give God just a little bit of our time and say the rest belongs to us, we've made the Lord into a golden calf. When we got, give God just a little bit of our money and then say, but the rest is mine, to use how I want to use it. Right? Not recognizing that not only your life, but everything you have in terms of all of your material possessions, that's a gift from God. It's God's. And you're just a steward of it. And he may give you that stewardship for your enjoyment and your pleasure. He may give it to you so that you can share and give it away to others. But the point is this, it all belongs to him. Right? It all belongs to him. He may ask you to give a small portion here or a larger portion there or say, no, just keep that for yourself and for your family or for your enjoyment. I don't know, but it's all his. But when we give this this token to God and say, but the rest is for me, 
we're choosing how we worship, right? And we're, we're remaking God. We've created a golden calf. When you give God just a, a little bit of a holiness in public, right? Just enough holiness in public. But in private, there are these dark secrets that you don't let God or anyone else see or touch. You're making God into a golden calf. You're remaking the way that it's appropriate to worship the Lord. And you know what the Lord does? He crushes our golden calves. He crushes them. Why? My favorite quote from Abraham Kuyper, he said this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Mine. You're mine. Your time is mine. Your money is mine. Your life is mine. Your relationships are mine. All of it is mine. All of it is for my worship. Mine. And because I'm sovereign, I get to choose how I'm worshipped. You don't. And when we begin to create golden calves, God steps into our lives and he says, I, I, need, to, I need to grind that up. I need to grind that up. Turn back with me to chapter 32, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once for your people, Moses, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, they have corrupted themselves. They've quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf, and they have worshipped it, and they have sacrificed to it, and they have said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now skip down to verse 19. So it came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger burned. And he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. Which was not a, it wasn't one more instance of Moses' impetuous nature. This was, this was symbolic. They had broken the covenant, so the, 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 the tablets were shattered. Right? And he took the calf which they had made, and he burned it with fire, and he ground it to powder, and he scattered it over the surface of the water, and he made the sons of Israel drink it. Then Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people, yourself, that they are prone to evil. For they said to me, Make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> that's, that is really, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's funny. That's really good humor, right? I mean, what's the actual description? It says he took it and he fashioned it and he was really careful. But when Moses confronts him, he goes, hey man, I just, it just popped out. It's like, wow. I mean, that's amazing. Do you know know what Moses did with that calf? So he pulverized it. He put it in the water. He said, drink it. What happens? You drink it. You drink it. It's eliminated. Right? That which had been so valuable to them, this beautiful provision God had given to them, right? They plundered the Egyptians and taken their gold and their silver, right? What was really valuable to them, God made into excrement, never to be used again. He defiled it, right? God crushed their idols. Why? Why does God crush our idols? I'm going to give you a few reasons. The first is very simple. It's because idols are a lie. I want you to mark your place in Exodus 32 and then turn to Isaiah chapter 44. We're going to read this, this somewhat lengthy description of the fashioning of an idol. Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 9. 
Isaiah writes, Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame. For the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Then let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. The man who shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. But then he gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and he becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He sends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He's very, very careful, right? He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass. And he makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in his house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir uh, and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for the man to burn. So he takes one of them and he warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image. He falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast and he is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me because you are my God. They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, Wait a second. I burned half of it in the fire and also baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? See that last verse? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. He cannot deliver himself nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Idol's a lie. I'm worshiping a lie. And God wants to deliver us from lies. Did you sense all the sarcasm going through there? He's eating meat over part of the wood, and then he's worshiping the rest, which if it fell into the fire would immediately be burned. It's a lie, right? And lies destroy us. Lies, as you said, bring us shame. Get all of the idol makers together. Let them all together be put to shame. Psalm 115 says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. That's what I really wanted to highlight for you. Those who make them become like them. Right? Idols steal your life from you. You become like them if you make them. And idols destroy not only you personally, but they harm the, indiv- they harm the community in which you live. Right, turn back to Exodus chapter 32 and verse 25. Exodus 32 and verse 25. Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, 
right? I mean, again, imagine their, their worship, right? It's, they're, they're eating and they're getting drunk and they're having sex. He says, this, this is, and he comes down and he sees this. And Joshua thought, oh, there's the sound of war. He goes, no, they're, they're having a party. Right? That's their worship. So when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies. They're, they're a derision. Now even their enemies are looking at them. Like, oh, this, is, this is crazy. These folks are crazy. What kind of a God must they have if they worship like that? Rather than being a blessing, or as God said, I'll make even your enemies to be at peace with you, and they will be drawn to you because you will be a kingdom of priests. You'll be a light among the nations. Now they're a derision among the, among the nations. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and he said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together with him. Right? They came to their senses. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp. Kill every man and his brother and his man and, and every man and his friend and every man and his neighbor. So the sons of Levi, Levi did as Moses instructed. About 3,000 people of the, men of the people fell that day. There was, there was death in the camp. There was death in the camp. Why? Well, Moses gave him an opportunity. He said, if, if, if you're for the Lord, come to me. And those who said, no, we're going to keep worshiping like we want to worship. Moses said, remove them from the, the congregation. Now, keep in mind. Death is not hell. Death is not hell. These are the Lord's people. How is a a person saved? Remember, we're talking about a redeemed people, rescued out of Egypt. How is a person saved in the Old Testament? We talked about it last week. Romans chapter 4 should immediately come to your mind. You're saved by grace through faith. Just as Abraham was, before he did good works, before circumcision, before the law, it's not of yourselves. The moment that you believe, God rescues you out of darkness, and he puts you into his family. You belong to him. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Okay, for us, that's how it is. By grace through faith. For them, by grace through faith. Now, having been saved and belonging to God eternally, God's people make choices. And our choices have consequences. Will we worship God above all other false gods or will we begin to elevate idols in our life? If we do, there will, harm will come to us and harm will come to the community around us and God will step in and he will discipline. You know, sometimes people go, man, the God of the Old Testament doesn't seem anything like the God of the New Testament. Why don't you go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, God's people are gathering together to worship him and what's happening? They're gluttonous and they're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They've even got immorality in their church in Corinth that they're not addressing. And so what happens? He says, well, some of you uh, are sick, physically sick, and some of you have actually died because your worship has become idolatrous because you have believed in me. And as he says to the people in Corinth, you're saints, you're holy ones, you're set apart, but you're not living like saints. Instead, you're remaking me and you're deciding how you want to worship me. And the result is, death even is coming into your community. But there's hope, there's deliverance, right? Moses says, if you're for the Lord, come to me. And the Levites wake up, they come to their senses, and they turn, they come to him. Right? And they're delivered, they're rescued. Look at chapter 32 and verse 9. It says, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are obstinate. Literally, they are stiff-necked. 
Now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I will start over with you and I will make you into a great nation. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and he said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and by a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak saying with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Moses says, Lord, stick to the plan. Lord, Think about your reputation. The nations will see this and they will say, well, he just brought them out into the wilderness to kill them, not to bless them. Lord, think about your reputation. Lord, think about your promises. You made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Lord, stick to your plan. And it says, then, because of Moses' intercession, the Lord changed his mind. Now, I am 100% confident that I don't understand this. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what's going on there, but it's pretty clear what the text says. The Lord changed his mind. The Lord responded. Now, some commentators dive into this and they say, well, clearly what this means is that God doesn't actually know all things. He doesn't know what's going to transpire. He doesn't know Moses is going to intercede. And he doesn't know what he'll do when Moses intercedes. He's just reacting to the circumstances, which if you read the rest of the entire Bible, that's clearly not appropriate, right? God, God knows all things past. He knows all things present. He knows all things future. He knows all things potential that could happen but don't happen. God knows all things. His foreknowledge and his knowledge is, is exhaustive. So some commentators say, well, this is just kind of a head fake. He's just kind of testing Moses to see if he'll be uh, kind of self-centered and want the nation, a new nation to be built, out, built after him. And I say, you know, I think that that's just overly simplistic. I think this is a, this is a really mis- mysterious passage, but it's also clear God's, in a sense, his intent is appropriately because his own people have immediately broken the first commandment, broken the second commandment. And the consequences of that is is death for them. I think that's clearly his intention. However, whenever God promises judgment, there's always an implicit escape. Right? There's always an implicit opportunity to escape. Think about uh, the story of Jonah. Remember Jonah's story? Right? Jonah, God says, go to Nineveh and proclaim to them, you're going to be destroyed. Because you're sin. Three days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And what does Jonah do? He goes the exact opposite direction, and he runs away. Why does he run away? Well, we don't know until we get to the end of the story when Moses says, you know, God, when they repented, you forgave them. And I knew you would do that. That's why I ran away. Because I didn't want them to be spared. But I know your character. I know that you're gracious and kind and forgiving and compassionate. Therefore, even though you said in three days the end of it will be destroyed, I know that there's always an opportunity for people to repent, and I didn't want that. I wanted Nineveh destroyed, so that's why I ran away. Right? Always implicit in this, 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 this uh, promise of judgment for sin, God says, but if they repent. Right? Ezekiel chapter 18 says this, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. 
As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn. Or as it says in Isaiah, the Lord waits on high to have compassion on you. It's like God is at the edge of heaven and he's looking down and he's saying, please, please, please don't make me do this. So I'm, I'm uh, in the process of uh, creating an, a book idea in my mind. It's a parenting book. And it's, it's going to have three chapters that describe, summarize my parenting technique. It's one chapter on each. It's shame, guilt, and threats. Okay? So if you're a parent and you want to take notes, shame, guilt, and threats, right? I'm, I'm kidding, of course. I don't use lots of shame and guilt. Threats, yes. Like threats. But in my threats, I'm always waiting for the opportunity to forgive. Please, please, please don't make me do this. Please return. Please repent. And what happens is God delivers them. God rescues them. God says, all right, I'm done. I'm done with the, I'm done with the judgment. But then he says to Moses, but I got to tell you something. I'm not going with you. <laughs> I, just, I just can't. I'm exhausted. These people... Your people, Moses. They're wearing me out. If I went with you, I'd probably destroy you tomorrow. I just can't. And then Moses jumps in and he intercedes again. He says, Lord, if you don't go with us, then leave us here in the airport terminal. (laughs) Leave us in the desert. Don't move us on. Because the only thing that makes us distinct or different among the nations is your presence. Go with us. And the Lord says, okay, I'll go with you. Moses says, I got something else to ask. Would you show me your glory? I just want a little bit more. I want more, Lord. I want more. What protected Moses from idolatry? He was on the mountain. And he was in the presence of the Lord. Right? That's, what, that's what guarded him. That's what protected him. In fact, there's a really interesting little uh, side story that's just inserted. It's not part of the the chronology of the narrative. If you look in chapter 33, verse 7, parenthetically, it says, Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. Anyone and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would arise and they would stand each at the entrance of his tent and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. And then whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, notice this, when Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Did you catch that? Why was Joshua selected as the next one who would lead them in the promised land? Because even when Moses was done with his meeting, Joshua didn't leave. Young men, young women, set a pattern in your life. Don't leave the tent. Don't leave the tent. What protected Moses? He 
He was face to face with the Lord. He was always asking for more. He was begging for more. What protected Joshua? He stayed at the tent. Man, I'm going to get as close as I possibly can get. He couldn't go up on the mountain, so he got right to the edge of the mountain. And I'm going to wait. He wasn't in the camp. He was waiting. He was watching. Forty days, forty nights, Moses is there. He didn't give up. He, he, just, he just stayed. Church, I would say two applications for us are these. First, deliver yourself from your idols. If figure out what they are. Figure out what they are. What, what are, the, what are those, those, those dreams and aspirations? You say, well, if I just had that. Or what are your, your fears or your nightmares? You say, but if I lose that. Or what are the emotions that, that get overwhelming to you, right? Because what happens is when we, we bank on idols, we've invested ourselves emotionally, and when they fail, we get angry or we get depressed, right? Identify the things that, you, that you've given your heart to. And then deliver yourself, right? Be in the tent, The only way that you really can spot these lies, these false gods, is that you're in the tent, day in, day out, not giving God just a moment on a Sunday, but you're giving him all your time. It all belongs to you, whether I'm at work, whether I'm walking to class, whether I'm with my roommates, whether I'm uh, praising and worshiping on a Sunday morning, it's all you. Like, be, Be in the tent. I mean, really, change the patterns and habits of your life so your affections can change, so that God will remain first and foremost in your life. Second application is this. Deliver those who are idolaters around you. God responds to Moses' intercession. Again, how does all of that unravel in the, the, the sovereignty and foreknowledge of God? I don't know, but God has said, you know, I'm going to dignify you as creatures made in my image by allowing you to participate in my redemptive work, and you're going to do that when you intercede. I'm going to listen. I'm, I'm going to respond. I don't understand how the transaction works, but God promises that he responds to your prayers, right? Pray for those who are broken. Pray for those who are lost. Pray for those who are rebellious, who are worshiping false gods that are lies and are destroying them. Those who seem the furthest away from God. Those are the ones God wants to rescue and heal and redeem. Pray for them and then share the gospel, right? This is how you intercede, through your prayers and you get the courage up to say, let me tell you about the one true God, not the false gods that you're worshiping. And maybe not in those termino- that terminology because it doesn't feel really winsome, but you get there, right? Church, identify your idols and crush them. And then intercede for those who are broken and hurting and lost because that's our calling. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would not be uh, foolish people this morning. I pray that we would be courageous. We would, we would see the things that have subtly slipped into our hearts and then, then arisen these, these things of finite value that have become ultimate things to us. Father, I pray that we would listen to the voice of your Spirit. I pray, Father, that you'd create courage in us uh, to intercede for those around us who are, who are lost and hurting and broken and chasing after false gods who constantly disappoint. Father, I pray that we would we'd see our, our opportunity as mediators, uh, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, to introduce them to you so that they could find life. Father, I pray that you'd give us stories, beautiful stories of those interactions. I pray, Father, you'd purify our worship. I pray that we'd come back next week. People who, who really are different, we're whole, pure in heart, loving you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you. We'll see you guys next week.